So if everything you're doing is working out, chances are you're not taking enough risk and you're not thinking big enough. And so I've definitely had ideas I've gone after, projects, initiatives that have failed, but what's critical is just like dusting yourself off and getting back out there and trying again. The formula that I articulated early, which was great people, now purpose alignment, focus and time can be applied not just to a company succeeding, but your own personal success, which is you work hard, you have a central focus and enough time and assuming you're purposely driven towards that focus, you're going to figure it out. Welcome in to Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview entrepreneurs, investors, and CEOs who reveal their personal stories and advice for high school and college students on how to become successful in the business world. Today, we are joined by Cyrus Masumi, founder and CEO at Dr. B, a telehealth platform that offers affordable online medical consultations with doctors. Prior to Dr. B, Cyrus was the founder and CEO at ZocDoc, a platform that allows you to book appointments with doctors in your area online. On top of Dr. B, Cyrus is also the founder and managing partner at Humbition, a VC firm. In this episode, we discuss how Cyrus founded Dr. B, why Cyrus is so passionate about providing affordable medical services, and why past founders are the best types of investors. Stick around to the end to hear how Cyrus evaluates businesses as a managing partner at Humbition. Here's the interview. Cyrus, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to speak with you. Thank you for having me. So Cyrus, please tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Cyrus Basumi. I am an entrepreneur and investor. I've started a few companies, ZocDoc. I started in 2007. I'm also a partner in a venture fund that I started called Humbition that I run with the founder of Indiegogo, Slava Rubin. And I have a new telehealth platform called Dr. B that I founded a couple of years ago that I currently run. You've had an amazing career by starting these three successful ventures. Could you give a quick overview of just what those individual ventures are? Sure. I think it's fun when you talk about the various founding stories. So ZocDoc, I was working as a management consultant at McKinsey in New York, and I had a really bad sinus infection. And I had a plane that landed in New York City, and I ruptured my eardrum. And I couldn't find a doctor. I went to my insurance company directory that at the time, a lot of people used to find doctors. I started calling down a list of doctors, and there were doctors who were no longer practicing. One doctor was dead. I thought that it was ridiculous that I was doing all these things online and accessing doctor's appointments was so difficult. So I basically decided to build this platform that helped people book doctor's appointments instantly online, searching who accepts their insurance, eventually expanded to all 50 states across 50 different medical specialties, and it has a number of millions of users on the platform. Ran that company for about a decade. On that journey, I reflected upon the investors who were the most helpful to me. And I found that investors who actually had built businesses before were among the most helpful. ZocDoc was very fortunate to have had people like Mark Benioff from Salesforce, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, Jeff Fleur, who started StubHub. And many of these entrepreneurs, because they'd walked in my shoes before, their advice was obviously more spot on. And back then, I think New York had fewer entrepreneurs who built big companies. And so Spava, who I had gone to college with, we both went to Penn and he'd had a similar experience with his company. And so we decided we would build a venture fund. Basically, it was our money and our friend's money that would invest in the next wave of great companies. I've been doing that with him for six years now. And I guess lastly, as I think about my latest startup, Dr. B, one of the things that I, whenever I was talking about how ZocDoc was improving access to healthcare, I would always get the question asked, 
asked, how are you improving access to care for those who could not afford it? And many people don't realize that the number of Americans who don't really have access to the healthcare system is staggering. It's north of 90 million people. And those 90 million people, maybe a third don't have health insurance, but there's about 16 million have health insurance, but it's too expensive for them to use the health insurance they have because their deductibles are so high. And so I wanted to start a company that would improve access to healthcare for everyone. And with COVID, telehealth laws all across the U.S. changed to make it easier for doctors and other medical providers to perform telehealth and specifically do it in more efficient ways. And so we created a telehealth platform that patients can use to get access to everyday treatments. The patients only pay $15, which is less than the average insurance copay, yet they don't have to have or use insurance. And if someone can't afford $15, we treat them at no cost. So it's the first telehealth platform in the U.S. that treats every patient regardless of their ability to pay. How did you start Dr. B? I imagine you had tons of experience from ZocDoc, but what was the initial steps toward building Dr. B? So it was actually an interesting journey. We started right at the beginning of the COVID vaccine rollout, which was in the beginning of 2021. And back then, getting access to the COVID vaccine was the most valuable commodity on earth. Oftentimes, the people who had signed up to get vaccinated didn't show up to their appointments. That happened 20 to 30% of the time. And those excess vaccines were then getting reallocated to people who couldn't afford physically or financially to wait in line all day, which were not the most vulnerable portions of the population who were dying from COVID. And that seemed unfair to me. And so I wanted to create a more fair system that took the excess COVID vaccine, reallocated it to people based on their needs. So we started as a COVID vaccine wait list. And then after the COVID vaccine came, we sent out a million vaccine notices to people and helped a number of people get vaccines when they were not easy to get. But then after that was done, we recognized that there was other opportunities to help further the ending of the pandemic, specifically giving people access to antiviral medications. So in the U.S., we've had access to these treatments like Paxlovid and Molnupiravir for some time. And these are treatments generally patients need to get in the first five days of getting COVID. So that means that you have to have known you had COVID, you have to have had healthcare coverage, having a primary care doctor and having that primary care doctor being able to see you all within five days, which is a really difficult thing for many Americans to navigate. And so we started by saying, let's go and provide a telehealth service where people can get access within generally one hour, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, they can get access to a medical provider and they get this treatment. If they test positive, literally a few hours later, they could be in the pharmacy or someone could go pick up the medication for them and they can start their treatment to get better. And so that was really the impetus and it worked really well in COVID. And we recognized many other medications have a similar profile where people need them acutely. They may not have access to doctors and you can use telemedicine to effectively get it to them more easily. How did you get access to the medications like Paxlovid and initially the COVID vaccine to distribute them to people? So in both cases, we work with partners. So in the case of the COVID vaccine, we had a team of individuals that was going all across the country and signing up vaccine sites. So we had hundreds, like I'm going to say plus over 700 vaccine sites that we literally signed up through feet in the street, like knocking on doors metaphorically and calling folks up. In the case of Paxlovid, what we do is the federal government publishes an daily 
basis, a list of pharmacies that have access to the medication and that gets updated. We ingest that data daily. And so when a patient, assuming that they're a candidate for the medication, when they're asked to pick their pharmacy, we then filter down to those pharmacies that have inventory of the medication. And of course, inventories are subject to change and there's a lot of human error that people may have when they report their inventories. So we make sure that if a patient can't get it at one pharmacy, they'll be able to get it at another. But it's been literally all hands on deck, especially during the spikes after the holidays this past year to make sure that everyone who needs the medication can get access to it if they qualify. You keep mentioning that it's super important to make sure that medical care is equitable for all. How important is this goal? for your business? So in many ways, I feel guilty that in my first healthcare business, I did not do enough for people who, quite frankly, couldn't afford care. The U.S. healthcare system, for those that can afford it, it's the best in the world. But the problem is a big portion of our country cannot afford it. And I think that's a huge tragedy. And if you pick apart the history of why this problem exists, it's got a very ugly past. There are certain communities that have been disadvantaged the entire time they've been in this country and they've been wronged. And those same communities are many of the same people who don't have access to care. And the numbers are pretty astonishing. Close to the majority of American households cannot afford a one-time charge of $500 if it comes out of the blue. Yet the vast majority of healthcare deductibles is over five. They're in the thousands of dollars. And so only 10% of Americans ever really hit the deductible for their healthcare. And so people are not getting the routine care that they need and deserve. And that is a basic human right, in my opinion. And in certain populations, there was four times the death rates than in others simply because people had a lot of pre-existing conditions that had not been treated, that could have been treated. And so I think that government, the federal government, has tried during numerous administrations over my lifetime to try to solve this problem. It doesn't seem to be getting better. And occasionally we have something like COVID that shines the light on these inequities. If you believe that the country is becoming more and more divided politically, the probability of a political solution solving this problem is, in my opinion, not very high. And so... I believe that it's incumbent upon healthcare companies to sol- do what they can to solve this problem. And I think the ones that are most likely to be disruptive in that regard are the technology companies. I think treating everybody makes it very easy for you to partner with folks that one may logically partner to get the word out about a new telehealth platform. It makes it easier for people to tell their family and friends about it because it's not something that only select people can afford to do. Anyone can afford. You have a COVID, you have a flu, you have some bacterial infection. For women, UTI, yeast infection, bacterial vaginosis, these are very painful conditions that many people don't have readily access to getting treatments for. And now we're able to stand up and say every American in literally anywhere in the country can get access to these treatments. How do you go about spreading Dr. B as a solution to the problem that you just illustrated to your customers, both initially as you did with the COVID vaccine and now? So thankfully, because the value prop to the consumer is unmistakable, it's more efficient and more economical solution for them to access medical care. Most of our growth has been coming from word of mouth. I think over half of the users that are using Dr. B are hearing about it from other people. And then once people use it for something, they tend to be coming back to use it for other things. And so that's obviously the best way to grow a business is to have that kind of organic growth. Beyond that, I think we're looking at partnerships with other folks in the healthcare world who care about patients getting treated and where there may not be medical providers available. And having that help us evangelize what we're doing is a big piece of it. 
well. What do those partnerships do? Who do you partner with and what do you offer to those partners and what do they offer to you? So one of our partners, for example, is a company called Phase Scientific. They have a COVID test called Indicate. There's about 20 COVID tests that are currently on the market in the U.S. They are one of them. And what we started doing last year is to say, why does every COVID test not have with it a treatment? Why is every COVID test not test to treat? You get the box, you test positive. There should be a way for you to immediately get to a provider who can give you treatment almost instantly. And so so that's the nature of it. You take a test that was just a test and now it's a full solution. You can give it to large employers, sell it at retailers, and you're not just selling, am I positive or not? You're selling, I'm positive. And regardless of your financial condition, you will get treatment. We need to lower the barriers and make it easier for people to get the important treatment they need when they need it. I imagine with building your current product, you had to talk to tons of doctors and how are you able to get your doctors on your page to provide telehealth services? That's an excellent question. Getting back, if I was to contrast Dr. B getting doctors on board versus ZocDoc, it's been very different. In the world, when I started at ZocDoc, the majority of doctors were independent businesses. They were independent small businesses. 70% of doctors in the country were in that category and 30% were employed. And the numbers have totally shifted over the course of the last 15 years, where 70% of doctors are now employed, 30% are small businesses. So it's become more difficult to get doctors as they become part of a larger ecosystem to do various things. In the case of telehealth, you heard about the great resignation in business where a lot of people, COVID was so depressing. A lot of people just wanted to change up their lives. They changed their jobs. They changed where they were living. I was in that camp. I was living in New York for 20 years. I moved to Florida because it was depressing. I was going into an empty office. There was no one to go hang out with. We were all by ourselves and I was living by myself with my dog. And that was basically it. Doctors are no different and they've wanted to go through similar change of environment. And I think telehealth has facilitated that for more physicians. And so it's been easier for us to get medical providers on our platform as of late, because I think people want the flexibility of being able to work remotely. They don't have to go in and be in an office, put on their suit and tie and their white coat. They can manage things. They have kids at home and they can manage around their schedule and work accordingly. A number of medical providers on the platform are adding more every day. And I think it's been much easier than it was 15 years ago. How specifically did you get in touch with the doctors? Do you do cold emails or did you know them previously? In the case of ZocDoc, we literally started by going door to doctor's offices. I was the original salesperson. I started my career in a commercial role at Trilogy to cut my teeth in sales in that regard. But this is a different kind of sale, like literally going door to door, getting thrown out of doctor's offices. A couple of times I got escorted out of a doctor's office with security because they told me you could never come in. In the case of Dr. B, we actually recruit the doctors through regular job boards, like post jobs. And the doctors actually apply to want to work with us. And then we get referrals from other doctors that we work with who have friends that understand what we're doing and love the mission and they get to treat every patient again regardless of their economic status and i think that's something doctors really appreciate that they can really be part of a solution for everybody and so it's been a really good journey so did dr b raise money we raised yes we raised what we announced is eight million dollars we announced that last summer i made that decision because we had pretty big ambitions for what we want to do with this business and i want to make an impact on health care broadly. There are pluses and minuses to bring on outside investors. The plus being that you get a lot of people helping and a lot of validation in the market. The minus being that there's certain expectations of how you need to grow and you go on a certain path where, as we're seeing right now with both public and private markets, but there are some growth stage companies that are not able to maintain that path and it's putting a lot of pressure on their businesses. But ultimately, healthcare is 
the largest sector of the U.S. economy. If you took healthcare of the U.S. out by itself, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world. That's how big it is. And so we spend more per capita in healthcare than any country in the world. Actually, 50% more per capita than the next closest country. And yet the outcomes are so abysmal here because so much of our country does not have access. I think if you're going after a market that is that big, you have a solution that can be truly disruptive. You want to make sure that you have all of the wood behind your arrow you can to succeed. And for that reason, we decided to raise money. You said previously that the best types of investors are ones that had previously started businesses. What advice do those entrepreneurs as investors give that is so helpful? When they tell you certain things like, hey, step on the gas here or cut expenses here, or this is how I'd approach interacting with this person. It's not something theoretical that they observe third hand in a boardroom. This is something that they've done themselves. And they just have greater empathy for what you're doing as an entrepreneur. And it's more pleasurable to work with people who see the world from the same set of eyes as you do. So I think especially early and the earliest investors, the folks that we picked at Dr. B were all people who have been founders themselves. Ben Lear and Lear Ventures started Group 9, which of course is Thrillist and the Dodo and This Now and other great media properties. And he started his own venture fund with his father and the Hippo. And so he's been an amazing investor to have and sounding board for me as we thought about this business and focusing on new markets, et cetera. And Ken Howry, who has been an early investor in all of my businesses, but he's founder of PayPal and the Founders Fund. He invested both through the Founders Fund and personally. So these are all entrepreneurs, I think, that I very much admired and have learned a lot from over the years and I'm excited to have them on board. What has been your biggest takeaways from your time at ZocDoc? So many takeaways. I had a formula for success that I used. And I thought about why ZocDoc succeeded. I distilled down to this formula, which is great people, hard work, focus, and time. Assuming the market's big enough, you have great people and they're focused and they're hardworking. With enough time, you're eventually going to go build a big business. It's inevitable. I've come to realize that hard work, for the purpose of hard work, is not limitless. Hard work is limitless if a person doing the hard work is tied to the purpose of the underlying organization. And so if the organization has a noble purpose, more and more people came behind. They're going to work hard regardless of that being a company value. They're going to do it because they believe and they want the company to succeed because they care about the purpose of the underlying company. And so I think that's a learning that I had at ZocDoc that I relearned over the past five, six years. And it's become a different lens that I apply to problems. Could you talk about how you started Humbition after realizing that this was something that you wanted to pursue? So I was really quite lucky that as an angel investor prior to having any role as a professional investor, I invested in some amazing companies. And some of those companies were ClassPass, where I was an advisor to Pile, the founder of the original CEO in the very beginning, Refinery29, the media company where I was an advisor, Philip and Justin, Compass, where the big real estate brokerage firm, I'd known Robert Refkin, he was an early angel investor, the founder and CEO of Compass in ZocDoc. And I subsequently invested in him when he built Compass and was one of the first investors there. And Cedar, which was started by one of my top people I've ever worked with, Orient Auto. And uh, he ran our sales team at ZocDoc. And all those companies have become huge successes over the years. And you could say I got lucky on my investments because I was never a very prolific investor, but the company that I invested in did quite well. And I was able to leverage that to convince many of my friends to invest alongside. And Slava, my partner in my venture fund, had a similar track record. I think his is even better than mine. 
And uh, we decided, having grown up together as entrepreneurs, let's go do this. And so cut from the same cloth. And I think it's been great ever since. What do you think is good to look for in a business as an investor? I actually think it all boils down to the founder. In every single one of those instances, I didn't really spend much time looking at the business, to be perfectly honest, because the business is going to change. But the founder is the founder. And so I quite frankly just invested in people that I admired and I love their persistence. In many of those cases, it's not that I picked the winning company out of an error. In many of those cases, founders asked me multiple times to put money in, but eventually I got involved. And if you think about it, there was something about that individual after my saying no that led me to still having a relationship with them where I would talk to them. And so arguably I liked something about them and they were persistent enough to refuse to take no as an answer. So I'd like to think that I was masterful and I read this person in an immediate meeting, but in many cases I knew them for quite some time before I got formally involved. And I, I just got really lucky that I had friends who were talented and made me look good. But now that we have a fund, we have 18 portfolio companies and some have done phenomenally well, some have not. And that's the name of the game. And so I have a couple of things I care a lot about. I care about healthcare and healthcare access and I care about entrepreneurs. And those are effectively my two guiding lights. And if you look across everything that I'm doing, it's all in that direction. What are your reflections on being a CEO versus being a VC? They're very different. They can be the same. As an entrepreneur, the kind of investor you are is you're, you're backing the founder. You're not micromanaging. And I think there are VCs who tend to be a bit more hands-on and they have a bad reputation for doing that because founders, quite frankly, they didn't start companies because they want to have someone telling them what to do. They started companies because they saw a change they wanted in the world and they wanted to be the ones to craft what that looks like. As an investor, I am available to entrepreneurs when they need me. I have an opinion if they're talking to me about something, but I'm not going to really try to drive my opinion as being the North Star of the organization because that's not the kind of investor that I want to be. I want to be the entrepreneur's friend. If they're having a problem, I want them to know they'd call me 24-7 and I will step up and do whatever I can to help them. As a CEO and founder, it's very different. I am ultimately accountable for the success and failure of the business, and so I am much more or pushing new ideas and wanting to debate them with my team. And I set the strategic direction and they figure out the tactical plan of how to get there. But ultimately, I am much more hands-on and I love being a hands-on CEO. How do you define success? So I don't feel successful. And so I don't know what that means. Arguably from a financial metric, I have more money than I did when I had no money. But ultimately, I wonder if it's something that's even ever attainable for me. Because as soon as I've achieved something, I want to achieve something bigger. And the thing I just achieved doesn't seem like it was as big of a deal as it previously was. And I think that's part of what keeps one young and what keeps one motivated to build new things. And so I hope I never feel successful. I think that people use success in the broadest sense to mean lots of things. I think happiness is probably people talk about how money does not bring happiness. I think that's true. So if you held a gun to my head and asked me to define it, I would say success is happiness and happiness across multiple dimensions of your life. Am I happy with my relationships? Am I happy with my physical body? How healthy I am? Am I happy with the projects I'm doing, whether it's professional or otherwise? But I think I'll never be content. I always want to do something bigger, better, different than what I did last time. And hopefully I never feel successful and I continue to have that drive. Cyrus, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you for listening. And please make sure you follow Studying Success to get notified when new podcasts come out. Also, please leave a review and send the podcast to your friends and family to show them what you learned. It would greatly help the show. I'm Will Burkhart, and you've been listening to Studying Success. 